also like to welcome everyone tonight. Uh, we're actually going to begin a new foundation of mindfulness. You thought we were stuck on the body. Uh, surprise. We're moving off to the second foundation. When I was a undergraduate student in college, uh, I was a psychology major and the they had a machine there that was, I think it was called a tachistoscope, and it showed uh, pictures on a screen, but so quickly that the mind couldn't register what the picture was consciously. And then they had a bunch of wires taped to you neurologically, and what was really interesting was that there was, the body was reacting to the slides, the individual slides, preconceptually. In other words, you couldn't say or even tell the person what the slide was, but your body seemed to be moving in an approach or avoidance situation in relationship to what it was seeing. And that developed a deep uh, interest in me as to what, what is guiding this whole thing if it wasn't my conscious uh, my conscious recollection, what was it that was guiding this whole thing? And uh, in Buddhism, uh, the initial conditioned reflex, conditioned reflex, that is where a perception and uh, then turns into a, a bodily recognition, uh, is what is called Vedana, or feeling tones, feeling tone in the way I'm using it uh, in this series is not equivalent to emotion, but is a precursor to emotion. And it sets up the entire approach to what it is that the, is going to happen to, uh, to the sense of the separation that's going to occur and the sense of embodiment that's going, about to take place moment after moment as experiences arise. Uh, and so that feeling tone of pleasure, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, has a, a tremendous role to play in the formation of ourselves as individuals. So we'll get to that in just a minute. But just to uh, regress just for a moment and talk a little bit about remembering this is a foundation of mindfulness. So. The mindfulness is the recognition factor of what is occurring while it's occurring. Uh, so we differentiated between mindfulness and awareness. We said that mindfulness was, uh, and this is a homemade definition, mindfulness is what the sense of self does to direct its attention to something. If it uh, wants to notice the breath, it directs its attention to the breath, and that's a mindful noting of the breathing as it's occurring. So awareness is more of a pre-existing uh, state that is not under the influence of the sense of, of a person. And therefore, when the person fully relaxes all the tension and desire for something to happen, what he or she finds himself uh, in embodied or in, uh, fully embraced in is awareness. And what most of us have to do is to move through the application of mindfulness to discover awareness. That's the journey of Buddhism. And uh, so for most of us, we start out uh, very uh, determined and individually assertive in our, the direction we place our attention. We begin to develop a little cubby hole of awareness for ourselves on our breath, on our back pain, on our knees, the sounds around us. And it feels very much under our direction. It feels like a script that's following our uh, particular uh, uh, will. And so if I want to notice my uh, seat on the cushion, I can notice that. If I want to notice the body sensations, I can notice that, I can notice what I want to, and it feels very individually determined. And as that practice unfolds in its inevitability, you begin to find that what limits 
the application of mindfulness and the continual forgetting of mindfulness is the strong sense of will that wants to induce mindfulness. So it starts working counter to its indication. And at that point, there needs to be a, a willingness to back off the strenuous ambition we associate with the mindfulness practice and see what we're bathing within that has held us all along. And that then takes us to a, a kind of abiding awareness. So that's the journey of mindfulness. And the first application or the first foundation of mindfulness was the foundation of the body. And it's a very beautiful foundation to have developed because it really is uh, the home base, you might say, where we can learn to be at home if we aren't already, where we have to learn to be at home if we want our spiritual journey to advance or move forward. And unless and until we are completely comfortable within ourselves, very little movement or spiritual development or growth occurs. So we see what we have to do, and those of us who are well-intended and sincere will just march this thing forward, dealing with the difficulties that seem to be obscuring um, a full embrace of the body. And then the next uh, foundation is the foundation of feelings. So the foundation of feelings is actually the beginning of the incursion into the mind. But it's best if you feel the Vedna, the feeling, from the body. Because as the tachistoscope showed, the body has a very developed sense or intuition uh, or subtlety of presentation of what that feeling tone is prior to the mind's recognition of it. So we can get a feeling often, I'm using it, I'm sorry, you can, you can get a sense often of this feeling tone from the body prior, prior as I mentioned, to the recognition factor. And this is often what we call the intuitive, what, what we sense is the intu intuition. We often sense that intuition is that, is that subtle bodily uh, sensation that gives us a, an approach or avoidance to what it is that's occurring. But here's an important point. Feelings are conditioned. In other words, what, you may have a certain appreciation or not of lima beans, which may be very different than how you initially thought of lima beans when you were a child. Feelings are conditioned by a whole circumstance that change over time. And what's conditioned is not really reliable. I mean, what is conditioned is you can't put much reliability in belief in what is conditioned because who knows what the set of conditions were that led to that conditioning to begin with. So to put a lot of faith in what the body says in a situation it's, it's, it's leaning towards or against is really putting uh, an, undue, uh, an undue exaggeration on something that is conditioned. In fact, intuition is not really based upon feeling tones. If they are, they're misguided. Intuition is based upon something much grander, much more clear comprehension of the situation that may, the body takes in in its vast intelligence, but it's not simply whether you like, I like it or not, but a, a, a more general and broader expanse of attention and awareness that leads to often action prior, again, to the full organization cognitively of what might be occurring. So it's, it's important to uh, just develop a uh, that body's intelligence, but don't, not to have that intelligence rely upon a simple conditioning behavior like, like the feeling it has. Now, uh, it's interesting because what we're doing when we go into uh, Vedana, feeling tones, is we're looking at the whole basis on which we are built as a people, in which we build ourselves individually and separate ourselves off and a whole basis of reactivity. Uh, our lives, if you wonder where or why you react the way you do, you can find the subtle uh, 
inception of that reaction within the feeling tones uh, of the body. So they're the, they're, the, they're the base, they're the first bricks of the building of self, you might say. And in, in the Buddha's uh, uh, Pachita Samuppada, the dependent origination, contact is what happens when the sense doors meet an object. And then feeling is the next step, the immediate next step of this whole sense of chain reactions that lead eventually to uh, the sense of being an individuated person. So here's what the Buddha says in his writings in the Satipatthana Sutta about feelings. And how does a monk or nun remain focused on feelings in and of themselves? There is the case where a monk or nun, when feeling a painful feeling, discerns that he is feeling a painful feeling. When feeling a pleasant feeling, he or she discerns that he or she is feeling a pleasant feeling. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he or she discerns that he is feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. So what you get a sense here is that there are three distinct feelings and that they're incumbent in every experience. Every experience has one of these three tones. Those same experiences can change tones, but they will always have one of those three tones. So it's interesting. Um, you have one of, one of three relationships with experiences or forms. Now, we're building ourselves up, so you're just going to have to go through this kind of brick-by-brick brick layer here as we see this, because it's very interesting that no matter what experience we have, we, have, we are set to either grasp it, try to prolong it, avoid it, and aversive to it, or dismiss it as being uninteresting and not worth paying attention to. That's the way we're oriented to each and every experience as they arise, because there's always an accompanying feeling tone within every experience. And may I say that that is the way that most individuals live their entire life, at the expense of whatever they like or don't like or don't care about. And if given uh, an open pasture of feelings without any sense of recognition or awareness of what it is that's building, they're building their lives upon, then these feeling tones set an attitude in place that over time, if unaware, if we are unaware, develop themselves into a character, into a pattern of behaviors around feelings. And at the end of this talk, hopefully, We'll talk about the character patterns that form from the mindlessness of perception of feelings and how they rise and create a conditioned way of posturing our life to the world. It's very interesting. And, and it's like, whoa, you know, let's break this thing down, see where I have come from, see what my real history is. You know, we think of our real history as the story we tell ourselves. But the real history is, is the feeling tones that have conditioned the story into ourselves. And the Buddha is saying here, just see the feelings as feelings. Just be very simple with them. See, the beauty of mindfulness, as you know, is that mindfulness is without judgment. It is without commentary. So we're not placing any judgment associated with the mindfulness. It's very simple. It's just what is being seen. That's all. Don't add anything to it. So when a feeling is noticed, is observed, don't add the next step to it, which is a withdrawal of support or a fascination with or a complete negation of the, of the experience. Just let the feeling be a feeling. If we can if we can be attentive at that level, no house gets built, right? No story gets in, indulged. No human being becomes uh, in place. Because the sense of you or I have as its foundation, as its living foundation, the 
aversion or uh, attraction of experiences based upon the feelings we have with them. Grasping and aversion. So this is, we're watching the formation of our story. Uh, and that, I mean, it's just like any, um, anything that's uh, like a, a beautiful tapestry that when you stand back looks like the, a, a beautiful scene of whatever it is, but when you look up close, it's just a single thread of red and a single thread of green beside the single thread of red. And at that level of just, of, of its subtlety, our lives, our story, our commentary, our histories have been built upon thread after thread of feeling tones. And we have the ability, and I hope all of you have recognized that in yourself, that we all have the ability to notice the feelings, to notice them, to notice the aversiveness. The, no, the aversion is too strong because that's after the feeling. It's just to notice whether we like, whether something's pleasant or unpleasant, whether we have, or, or neutral, where we don't even pay attention to it. You can notice an experience, like right now, as you're sitting, if something is unpleasant to you, hopefully not the talk, maybe your body, <laughs> just to notice the unpleasant quality of that experience. It accompanies the whole aversive drama story that we put. The unpleasantness doesn't disappear after the first incident, it stays all right along with the, the entire story being built. And so you can feel the feeling tone within the entire organized delivery of the mind system to what it's saying. And so, okay, or the attraction, or the wanting to prolong it. And so we're on to something that's very important because, uh, as I mentioned, uh, this a sense of aversion or grasping or delusion, which is kind of spacing out and never being present to anything in life, forms itself into a particular way that we go through life. And we have to, we have to begin to see that. I mean, you know, the, the beauty about awareness is that it's more subtle than the experience that's arising within it. So there is no experience that cannot, we cannot be aware of. And the fact, that's a beautiful fact, because if it were the other way around, then there would always be experiences to which we'd be unconscious to, and therefore we would, we would be unable to ever fully embrace that experience, because we wouldn't have the ability to attend to it. But it's the other way around, and because it's the other way around, there's a fourth way. I mentioned the three ways that each of us are always relating to experiences, well, there's a fourth way. And that is that you don't relate to it from a feeling tone at all. Because you hold the experience in awareness, and the awareness sees the feeling tone that's arising, but it isn't invested in the experience at hand. And therefore, the feeling tone doesn't give rise to a whole description that is based upon it, because it doesn't have anything to build upon after awareness is inserted within the experience. Now for most uh, lay people, emotions are where we, in, uh, is the access point in our life, where we're emotional, and I'm using emotions as we know them to be moods, that's the easiest access point for our attention. When we're feeling disgruntled or feeling uh, perturbed or impatient or something, that brings our attention, that rub of life brings our attention sufficiently so that we begin to insert our attention at that point. But that point is several steps further along than the feeling tone. And if you notice that feeling tone prior to the emotion, you will, this sense of being not liking what's going on is, is at the onset prior to the full-blown emotion as it gets delivered with 
a preponderance of feeling of aversion and then a whole dialogue around that and a whole description of events changes it from a simple feeling of pleasant or unpleasant into what anger depending upon how we digest the content and invest the dialogue of our life into what it is that we're thinking based upon the feeling tone. So the emotion is a house fully built, you might say, whereas the feeling tone is a simple foundation of how the house is going to be built. Now, uh, I always like to see that um, how feeling tones control us but how other people control us through our feeling tones. If you look at marketers, people who establish advertising, they're very keen in the awareness of feeling tones. And they have us like puppets, really. Uh, they can, depending upon what feeling, what segment of the population they're trying to arouse sufficiently to the camera, they will bring forth those experiences and invest in a very high degree of pleasure. Or politicians, if uh, are equally as invested in the, op uh, uh, the aversion of the other candidate, and you can just feel, you can feel yourself voting because of feeling tones. You don't know the person. You don't even know what's being said is true. And we don't even discern what is being said, whether it is true or not. We just base our voting or our reaction upon the pleasant or unpleasant feelings we receive from the ad. Now that's a, that's a walking unconscious person that you know, God, when I see this name, I just have this unpleasant feeling about it. I guess I should vote against them. Well, guess where that came from? Probably your opponent's political ads. So we really need to become aware of these things. And children are especially vulnerable to this kind of allurement. They're set in front of the TVs now. Boy, I tell you, parents aren't there. The advertisers have an incredible, just a free, open uh, field on these kids' experience. And then, of course, when the child is taken to the supermarket and he or she lights upon whatever he saw or she saw in the advertisement, it may, he, the little kid makes it hell for the parent to move beyond that product. And, and uh, I, just, I just think we ought to realize that this is the source of much of our slavery. And to really, uh, to sober up here and to look at this thing and say, okay, you know, enough of this. And I hope, like you and uh, like myself, you, you, these political ads in particular in the next, through the next six weeks, that you just, you just, I don't care if it's for or against the candidate you like or don't like, you just simply don't take it as truth and you feel that recognition of the feeling they're trying to bring forth. Now, so we're talking about something here that is very fundamental to the Dharma. In fact, you might say all the dramas, all the dramas of our life are based upon our feeling tones. All problems rest upon our, the way we're associating with a particular feeling tone. Uh, and, but when you look at these feeling tones, they're totally uh, conditioned, habituated in us. And all of our dramas you know, have, a, have played upon us for so long that we get used to uh, behaving in life through a particular complexity of feelings. And because this engages us in a particular way, engages our mind, engages emotionally in a particular way, and we get comfortable within that emotional framework, expressing ourselves through a kind of emotional framework, all based upon the feeling tones, and therefore we're establishing brick after brick of our character. These attitudes don't suddenly shift because you woke up one day and in a 
into the Dharma, you have to take off it brick by brick, layer by layer, what has been leveled upon us. And we do that not by going back to childhood, but by simply being present. The present holds the influence of the past within it. And every moment that we are present, we can feel the impulse, the karma. And this, if you just understand this is karma as nothing else, and you can understand what karma in a much fuller way, that it's the tendency based upon the past to react because of a historical reference we have done of like situations we have done so in the past. So you can feel the karmic tendencies to move in the present, but you see them in the present. And because if we base our life or base our practice in the present, then we won't follow these feeling tones into their logical sequence of order and habit that has been the conditioned way we've lived in the past. You can stop them, so to speak, at the door. Just by simply feeling or being willing to feel, being willing to sense the Vedana, the feelings as they arise in the present without acting upon it. So try it sometime. I hope you're trying it now, but if you're not making it an experiment on your own, where you, you feel it's like a, a blank revolver shooting, you know, not bullets, but blanks, and you can feel the impulse like you see a cookie and you, you know, you go, you see that every cell in your body moving towards it. That's the blank, you know. But now if you want to put a bullet in there, you, you see the cookie and you're, you're gobbling it, you know, breaking your diet or whatever you're doing. But just being at the mercy of that particular experience. And so the more we're willing to settle into the present, the less the past influences us. But we don't get out of the past. The past comes through us. It tries to influence us. But simply, if we know the present as the present, then the past has less and less influence within the present. If we have lost our relationship to where we take our seat, then the past is going to be the only thing that drives us forward. So you can see the importance of this, I hope. And so why do we suffer? Well, it becomes pretty clear, doesn't it? When there's contact and feeling, and then we are trying to prolong that feeling because we like it. And it almost feels like a, an inalienable right that we should be pursuing pleasure. I think it's pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of pleasure by definition for many people, most people. And so to move with what's pleasant just feels uh, very uh, encultured. In fact, the more materialistic a culture is, the more they are going to be based in their feeling tones and be conditioned by those feeling tones. It's obvious, isn't it? Because what a lot of material wealth does is that it gives you more and more subtle ways to avoid unpleasant feelings and advance pleasant feelings. And because we, can, we think we can buy our way out of one and towards the other by conveniences, then we try to do just that. But I was reading a New York Times article that said uh, that uh, happiness is not in wealth, uh, but it as long as you have at least $75,000 <laughs> or something like that. It is until you reach 75. After that, happiness is not in wealth. Well, some of us haven't reached that amount of money. And so we throw that article away and we find <laughs> happiness is not pursuing the feeling tone. Because when you're settled, I mean, just feel it in yourself when you're trying to prolong an experience that cannot be prolonged. It can only pro be prolonged in the imagination, in your, because it's, there's the experience, there's the feeling, and then the imagination tries to prolong it because the experience is very ephemeral. It's about ready to die. So the imagination tries to, tries to create a future for it. That's what a desire is, or that's what a fear is. 
It's the prolongation or the sudden ending of of an experience. It's a, so how do you make an experience last? You start dreaming about it. Now it's interesting because thoughts begin to take over at that point. As thoughts take over, the feeling tone then gets invested in the image held by the thought and then becomes milked by the image. And the image can be sustained, you see. The experience can't, but the image can. So the image becomes much more of a priority for us to invest in than the experience because we can prolong, prolong the pleasurable tone of life through an imaginative response to life. And so it, it, it counterbalances, becomes overemphasized when we are basing our life on feelings. I think that's very interesting. So that's the reason our story, everything builds up from there. You know, once an imaginative response occurs, then you have a whole story that comes out of that imaginative field and a whole sense of chapter and verse and each, oh, I know this, I remember this, and yes, if I can just do this, I can prolong this, and I liked her, and maybe we can get back together, and all of that, that calculative response, all based upon fantasy, the fantasy holding the image, and the image holding the feeling tone. We're milking the cow. Right? So what, what, good, is, what good is the actual life, the actual experience of life? It holds a limitation of feeling. But that's not what our inalienable right is. Our inalienable right is to pursue happiness at all costs, you know, and irrespective of other people pursuing the same thing, we will get there first in other countries. You can see the individuation. You can see how cut off and isolated we become because it all becomes about us and the perpetuation of something. And so we're not interested in anyone else. In fact, our definition of contact isn't true contact with experience. It's the contact of feeling, the feeling tone. When we say we've contacted and connected to life, what we usually mean is that we're bathing in the feeling tone that that image or that experience has. Not true contact. True contact feels the experience of life and it knows the conditioned response of the feeling tone simultaneously, but doesn't pair the two as being one and the same. Is this too much? Okay, stay with me. So you begin to, we begin to see then, we begin to see that, you know, there's a sobering quality here that we begin to see, wait a second, wait, wait a second here. This is going crazy, this is going crazy. Nobody is telling me it's going crazy because everybody else is running completely, you know, ungoverned by their own feeling tones. And nobody wants to question their feeling tones or anyone else's because it somehow puts an arrest to their whole life. Somehow the meaning of life somehow rests upon that description and investment of events. So I'm not going to call you on something that I've invested in, even though back here somewhere we think, you know, something's not working. But I, I, so there's a, there's a culture, or there's a mass hysteria to this, and a collaboration of unconsciousness. And it's deliberate, because now we know this, and we still do it. That's what deliberate means. So I want to talk a little bit about something that I've been following in my own practice lately, and that's the conservation of energy. You see that you can feel how the energy of the system is drained by the, the trying to wring the feeling out of an experience. And that the energy then goes into the thought which perpetuates the experience as I've just mentioned. And so our energy as a system, think of it as a system, gets consumed by our thinking. And so the energy is drained from the system through our thoughts. Now, one of the laws of thermodynamics, there is a conservation of energy. 
which means that energy cannot be lost within a system. It has to go somewhere. If that, if we have seen, if we have arrested, if we have stopped infusing energy into the feeling tones of an experience, which lead to thoughts about the experience, we've got that down, right? Where does that energy go? It's got to go somewhere. It doesn't just dissipate, you see. That energy goes to the awareness that knows the feeling. That's where the energy goes. The system is conserved. The energy of the system is conserved. And when the energy of the system is not moving in one direction, there's only two places it can go. This can go towards draining experiences for the rest of your life. Or can, can go towards awareness. Now you can change feelings. You can, something that was once interesting and suddenly experiences aren't interesting anymore, so now they're, you're not even going to pay attention to experiences. So now it's gone from pleasurable to delusionary, right? They're neither pleasant or unpleasant, and I'm tired of experiences. I'm finished with experience, so now it's gone to aversion. Or I'm just not going to have any reactions at all. I'm going to make myself numb to life, which means I'll just think my way through it, really, but I'll be numb to it, and then it goes into delusion. It goes into neither pleasant or unpleasant. So it's not a dropping off of. It's not a... It's not a placing of one feeling and replacing another. It's not that. This is a system. This is a system shift. Instead of it going into experience or shifting to another feeling within that experience, it goes to what holds the experience. And just let that sink in for a minute. Let me show you an example of that. <clears throat> you find this interesting? Good. <laughs> so, there's a painful experience in front of us. Somebody is hurting. Somebody is hurting, whatever. Now, that painful, empathetically, that painful experience we feel as an unpleasant experience in us don't we? And because it's an unpleasant experience, we will usually bypass it. We will move away from it. We will try to get away from that to a pleasant experience so that we don't have to feel the pain of that other person. But as meditators evolve and move out of their isolated position, they realize that staying and steadying their attention to the difficult is what needs to happen. And so Meditators learn to keep their attention there with the difficulty, and they feel vulnerable. What happens is, when we're not moving to avoid, we're feeling vulnerable within. And the sense of protection that we have counted on for our whole life is suddenly uh, removed. The defense mechanism, which is to avoid something, is not there. So we steady our tension, and we feel within that experience a vulnerability, a rawness, an exposure of. Well, guess where that energy that, was, that used to move to aversion now goes? Compassion. The system's energy, which used to be aversive to, now is no longer moving or trying to develop a new narrative about this person or trying to excuse why this person, oh, he just had bad luck or, see, that's all shifting the feeling tone within the experience. But being able to hold and steady one's attention so that it just stays with the difficulty in that, that person is having in that experience without moving from it and without recoiling away from it, suddenly the heart the energy goes into the heart system. This is another way, this is another word for awareness. Compassion is a quality of awareness, you might say. And so there you can feel it. You can feel the shift 
of energy, the conservation of energy that was going to aversion is now available for love. This is how it works. This is how it works. I find this fascinating. In fact, that's what I'm just watching that in my own practice. I'm just watching the possibilities of the conservation, the complete conservation of energy. So the reason that you would ever hold something is because to turn away from it is, your, is suffering. To turn away from something or to try to grasp and prolong something, to avoid or to prolong something, ultimately means that we're going to crash into the reality that no longer contains that particular feeling. And the abrupt ending of a feeling is for us suffering. Something's been taken away. Something that I counted on being there is no longer there. And we suffer in relationship to that thing being taken away. What was taken away? Feeling was taken away. Another beautiful quality of feeling is that it keeps us from, from belonging because we're not interested in where our feet are touching the ground. We're interested in finding the best place for our feet to touch the ground. And therefore, wherever we're touching, because the mind is overworking the system, it never feels like where it's touching the ground is sufficient. And so there's never a sense, or very rarely a sense, I should say, a feeling in place with yourself. Wow. Does that ring a bell? The kind of restlessness, especially, that Westerners have, because we are all driven in the nuances of our feeling tones, because this is a very materialistic culture, not said judgmentally, but just in fact, and therefore, feelings are going to be even more exaggerated within our lives than in others. And, our, and along with that will come an inherent restlessness and stability of, of presence. See, we're looking at this thing. We're looking at this thing, and it's beautiful to see it, but it's not easy to see it. And and perfectionism, because so many of us have this hurting, this hurting inside, we often infuse or a, 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 our attention to doing externally to offset the internal feelings of inadequacy, perfectionism. Perfectionism is looking for a perfect feeling. That's what it's attempting to do. One that has no compromise to the tone of feeling. But the tone of feeling is conditioned. It's not a given, so it depend, it's our mind that brings that component to the situation. It's not the situation that holds that. It's our conditioning to that situation. We're bringing the feeling to the situation. The situation doesn't inherently hold the feeling. So we're chasing after the perfection of our own sense of projection. You know, if I, if I had a strong sense of perfectionism, which I do not, and I heard this, I'd want to know whether that was true or not in myself. And I don't think I would put down this invitation to discover and investigate and look and inquire until I saw whether that was true. And if I knew it to be true, and if I knew I was chasing my own mind through the pursuit of my perfectionism, and I saw the pain of that chase, job done. I would no longer do it. I don't know about you, I don't want to live within the web of my feelings, caught in that 
spider web. Now let me, because the time is running out here, talk a little bit about uh, personality types, which was the homework. I thought it would garner some interest and uh, invite a curiosity into the personality types that you, we each are. We each have a, a preset way. One, we run predominantly on one feeling. So it's it's nice to know what feeling we're run on, although probably pretty quickly you'll be able to know. Uh, the, the, it's called the, you know, the, the aversive type, the greedy type, and the uh, deluded type. But this is not uh, horoscope stuff, okay? I, I, don't, I, just, I do not like Buddhism at this kind of gross level where we try to figure out what I am and what you are recertifying, re-solidifying our place in things. And so it's not about, def it's about giving our, give, knowing a tendency in ourselves. When a situation comes up, what's the, what is my tendency? Is my tendency to milk it, to be optimistic, to look at the, the glass as always being half filled, to try to flush out, you know, the, the sense of where, of what my predisposition is. You see, and, and so that's, there's the greedy type, which was just explained. Uh, eternally uh, optimistic, it will all work out. You know, if that's a favorite saying of yours, well then that's the predisposition that you probably are in. And if it's never going to work, guess what predisposition you are in there? <laughs> or what is wrong with this, or why won't, the first thing we look at is how this is not going to work, right? So that, that sort of sets us up, you see, it sets us up to look from a disadvantaged way because we have been so uh, sensitive to anything that's aversive, you know, and if the relation gets hard, out I go. And so I have a serial relationship pattern that lasts or job pattern or life pattern living in particular, many, many different locations. As soon as it gets a little bit hard, a little bit tedious, or uninteresting. Well, this is, I'm out of here. I just am very good at turning away. Very good at turning away and cutting off and walking. And I think that's self-reliance and I think that, and really it's just slavery, right? And then of course, there's the ignorant or the deluded type. It just kind of misses most of life in, in its entirety. It's often foggy without certainty can't make up their mind, feels adrift in different choices. Uh, and so that, you get a sense. And it says that the, the discerning the type of person you are the, by the posture is also healthy. But I don't, I don't this doesn't necessarily, it doesn't quite, I got this out of textbooks. It says that the greedy person walks carefully, slowly, that doesn't sound right to me. It sounds like I would race towards the thing. But <laughs> angry person walks quickly and forcefully. Maybe if they're angry or something to get away from something. But I don't. I wouldn't take this as fact. And a, a deluded person is perplexed and hesitant. But it's fun to, to kind of milk out. Just see what where, where your what your tendency is. And then start working to watch how you on a daily basis, moment after moment are very subtly um, sensitive to that particular expression of life and watch the patterns that unfold from that particular feeling and predisposition to that feeling. So that was the homework, and we'll discuss that next week. Thank you all very much. Can we have a moment of quietude? So just as we sit, notice the experiences that the body is having in this moment, so that you're founding your mindfulness within the body, 
And just notice whether in general there's a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral tone to this moment of meditation. Because meditation can also just be a system of avoidance. And you won't even know you're so, we're, if your tendency is aversion, we may not even realize that we're just avoiding things because no, we're just going to stay with the pleasant experience of the breath. But what that really means is that we're avoiding the emotional difficulty we're having. And we have to wake up out of these patterns. Or if you're just drawn, you just want pleasure, you know, you just sit down and, God, just give me some pleasure. Well, you're, that's the way your meditation is going to go. There's nothing neutral about meditation. It's what the mind does to it. It's like a car. You can crash it or you can drive it skillfully. Meditation is exactly the same. There's nothing inherently skillful or unskillful about sitting down quietly. Your mind will drive it. And we better know our mind sufficiently to know how we're driving it. Or we could go nowhere. We could just spin in circles or reinforce old patterns. Okay, if you have any questions or comments about anything, I'd be happy to... Yes? In, ex in what sense, well, excuse me? Okay. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's very important. The question is, um, uh, his qu question has to do with whether, uh, once you become aware of them, that the feelings will go away. Uh, or do you just, or do you just don't become entrapped within them? The feelings are are in, in think of them as hardwired into experience themselves. They don't go away. You will forever be drawn to, or drawn away from, or not care about. That that'll be the that'll be the initial conditioned response. But the awareness of the awareness that holds that doesn't play upon those. And after a while, when they aren't played upon, they aren't reinforced, they become less, um, it's, it's, uh, it's like Pavlov's dog, when you keep ringing the bell and not giving the dog any food, eventually it doesn't react when the bell goes off in the same way. It, it gets neutralized or gets deconditioned. And so the feeling tones after a while, when you have noticed them sufficiently, aren't as enticing to you. But doesn't mean they're not there in the background or you don't get a sense of it. And very quickly, if you lose reference in that moment, you can find yourself off and running, often until there's an emotional upheaval that inevitably the feeling tone, unguarded feeling tone, will lead to, which will lead to a reaction or you will have created some pain for yourself, and then you might wake up, you see? Somewhere along the line, each of us have the point that we wake up. For some of us, it's not until after the divorce, the unemployment, and we're out of money and homeless, and we think, God, I remember Buddhism there. I remember we had something. <laughs> some of us pick it up very quickly as it begins to, as it begins to rise in our life. And the, the quicker we invite an awareness and invest in awareness into the situation at whatever level of perturbance, the quicker this thing will resolve. Now at some point, you don't wait for the perturbance to be aware because the awareness itself invites, is so inviting that the energy that you used to invest in the system of experiencing is now invested sufficiently, the threshold has been met so that the system now 
invests in the awareness uh, rather than the experience. And so that is, in fact, what's known as equanimity. Having a difficult experience and trying to find a neutral place to that difficult experience is not equanimity. It's changing the feeling tone. It's trying to recondition a different feeling tone so that you, right? You see the difference? Okay, so that's important. Yes, sir. So on that point, when, when, you, when a thought comes up or an emotion comes up in practice and you, and you sense the feeling tone is, is neutral, but how do you differentiate that, that neutral feeling tone from um, not Because it doesn't look the same. How do you judge the difference? What's the difference between a dilute or just an unple- neither pleasant or unpleasant experience and non-judgmental awareness? The, the th- what happens to the mind when it, it's neither pleasant or unpleasant is that it doesn't see. It just passes over. It gets. It just goes somewhere else. It goes. It leaves that tone and probably gets lost in a thought, which is much more enticing or much more. Uh, enjoyable. So for instance, like on a breath, breath at some point becomes alluring and pleasurable, but oftentimes it's not. When you first sit down, it's like, oh man, it may even be aversive, but it, you'll also find that sometimes it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, it's just a damn breath. And it's harder and it's hard to keep your attention on the breath because it's not pleasant enough to invite an interest in it. And so it goes to thinking. It said, well, this is more interesting. I'll go here. And it does that. And it says, am I on my breath? Well, yeah, I'm on there. And, uh, <laughs> right? So there has to be a recognition. A recognition. Wait a second here. I'm giving myself away here. I don't care what, what life brings at me. I'm here. The awareness is here. And so you begin to feel, some people say they can't feel neutral. I think that's not true. You can if you just have the sincerity and willingness to, to stay the course. Usually then what happens is that you get very bored very quickly or some uninterested or, you know, we, 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 life really is a matter of it has to be interesting, it has to be pleasurable, it has to be entertaining enough. We have a whole level of of entertainment quality that has to be there for us to even pay attention. We aren't willing to pay attention to just anything. Feel yourself get bored and you realize that that boredom, the precursor of that boredom was that you didn't care, you weren't interested, it was a neutral feeling tone. So you go back to that sensation and you rediscover it and you watch boredom try to pull you away from it and it doesn't have the ability to move awareness that is not going to rest its attention upon the feeling. It's not going to re- invest in the feeling, you see. So look for experiences that you get bored with. Go back to the experience that led to the boredom and, and say, okay, so I'm staying here. Let me see what happens here. Yes. You explained something that I experienced about a month ago. It just really clicked in for me. Um, And it's kind of emotional, so I'll probably cry. Please. My husband went through brain surgery a little over a month ago. And after the surgery, his vision in one of his eyes was kind of coming and going. And we went into um, an ophthalmology exam. And and I was sort of standing behind him and they took one of those really bright lights and they shone it in his eye and they said, can you see this? And he said, no. And I felt this visceral, just like pulling back, um, just this awful feeling. And, and, um, and I started to like move into that and think about, you know, he's lost his sight, what's that, da, 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 da. And then I thought, wait a second, I'm, I'm his advocate here. I can't go there. Beautiful. And so, so I just kind of moved really present into the exam and, and just like out of nowhere, I kind of had this understanding and I said, I said, actually, 
I think he can see it, he just doesn't know it's light. Move it away. And they moved the light away and he said, yeah, it's gone. Oh. And, and it was like this, oh. it was like, if I had gone yeah. into that other yes. space, I wouldn't have been able to be there. No, no. But being there just... Uh, what I, the synchronicity of your two minds, too. I mean, for you to know that that was the case for your husband was pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah really. That's, I mean, that's it's beautiful. So, I mean, what she's saying, in essence, is that we pull away too soon. Uh, we make our conclusions, we withdraw our support, and we claim the emotional grief response when often uh, life is moving right forward, right on, right towards it. So tonight is a call to arms. We want to show up for ourselves here. You know, we don't want this thing, we don't want to be puppets in this any longer. We don't want the display on TV to translate into a voting booth. I guess a, we don't give voting booths anymore. <laughs> Our written ballots. But you understand what I'm saying. Okay, all. Thank you for your attention this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.